All right, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill this morning. We're going to continue our, um, our class on doctrine, biblical doctrine. And over the last several weeks, we've been studying Christology. It's the doctrine of Christ. Who is Jesus? What is his person, his nature, his work? So let's pray, and we'll jump into uh, part three of our teaching on Christology. Lord Jesus, we come to you today because of what you have done in our lives, because you have called us to yourself and redeemed us. And Lord, we know that our calling is to love you, to follow you, to learn everything that you've commanded us. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly this morning and that as we review the broad teaching of Scripture, considering your ongoing ministry, I pray that our minds would not only be informed, but our hearts would also be uh, stirred, that our affections for you would be strengthened, that our trust in you would be strengthened, uh, that our reliance on you would be increased. Uh, We pray for these things, that uh, our discussion of theology and doctrine uh, would produce worship and obedience and a transformed life. So we pray, we pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So Christology Part 3 is where we are today. A little bit of a review. Um, the first part of this study was on the person of Christ. And we gave that very simple and easy task to Stephen to talk about who Jesus is. So Stephen gave us an overview of Christ's humanity Uh, and also Christ's deity, looking at the virgin birth, the hypostatic union, his nature as the second person of the Godhead. And that is probably the most difficult aspect of this section we've been in, and Stephen did an admirable job tackling that. So the person of Christ, who he is. And last week, Carrie gave us an overview of the redemptive work of Christ. That's what Jesus has done, specifically during his earthly ministry. That's why Jesus came. So his redemptive work is specifically his righteous life on our behalf, where he fulfills the law, and as the old reformers and Puritans used to say, stored up a treasury of merit, this righteousness that then could be imputed to us, while at the same time Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could die, so that he could die as a sacrificial lamb, a substitute, who could fully pay the punishment, or pay the penalty, bearing the punishment, for our violation of God's law. So the redemptive work of Christ can really be encapsulated in this idea of atonement, that Jesus hung and suffered and bled and died in our place as our substitute, as a sin-bearing sacrifice. That's the redemptive work of Christ. And today we're going to talk about the ongoing work of Christ. So we've looked at who he is and what he has done, but what is Jesus doing now? And what will Jesus do in the future? That's what my task is for today, and we've broken this into four components. Resurrection, ascension, his session, that may be a new word for some of us, and then his return. Resurrection, ascension, session, and return. Basically, this is looking at what Jesus has done following his redeeming work on the cross. And you might say, well, resurrection should belong with his redeeming work and what he has done. And yes, that's true. But because Carrie didn't have as much time to get to it, and because it's so integrally connected to Christ's exaltation, which we'll be talking about today, um, I get to talk about the resurrection as well. So this is one of those things that really goes in both categories, but just because of the way time worked out, we're going to cover it today. So the fact of the resurrection is an essential aspect of Jesus and his work and his ministry. Um, If there is no resurrection, think about it this way. 
If Jesus is not alive, then there is no ongoing ministry of Jesus. If he doesn't rise from the grave, there is no ascension. He is not seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's not coming back. So the resurrection is closely connected to Christ's ongoing ministry and his future work. And the fact that he is alive today is of utmost importance. It's part of the gospel. This is a non-negotiable. If we deny the resurrection, then we have lost the truth of the gospel. Our salvation hinges in part on what Jesus did rising from the grave. The entire New Testament bears witness to the fact of the resurrection. As you read the gospels, you see his resurrection described. As you read the book of Acts, you see that they preached the risen Jesus. The resurrection features prominently in the the preaching ministry of the apostles. As we read the epistles, these letters written by leaders in the church, we see a theology of the resurrection woven throughout. It's in these letters where Christ is described not only as one who died, but as one who lives today and is the head of the church. Our life, our existence as the church flows from his ongoing life. So we see resurrection theology throughout the epistles, and of course we see it in Revelation. Revelation describes for us a living Christ who reigns from the throne and who will return to establish his kingdom. So the entire New Testament upholds for us the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection. And as a side note, oftentimes when the apostles are preaching about the resurrection or writing about the resurrection... They're connecting it to Old Testament promises that speak about the resurrection as well. So the resurrection is something we find all throughout Scripture, and it is a historical fact. So we can ask this question, what is the nature of Christ's resurrection? Well, first of all, we can say that Christ's rising from the dead means he is a kind of first fruits. You see that language in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again in verse 23, speaking of our own resurrection, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. When the New Testament authors speak of the resurrection of Jesus as a sort of first fruit, one of the things they're indicating is not just a a kind of chronology that Jesus rose and then other people do, but this is a new kind of resurrection. Um, There had been other people who had been Uh, raised from the dead in the past. We see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But Jesus' resurrection was different in its kind than those resurrections. Those resurrections were powerful. They were miraculous. But they were, you could say, a kind of a resuscitation where someone was truly and fully dead and they were brought back to life, but they were, it, it was like somebody pushed the rewind button. God pushed the rewind button. And those people did die again. The kind of body they had after Jesus or Elijah or, or you know, Paul raised them from the dead, the kind of body they had was the same kind of body they had before they died. But Jesus' resurrection is different in its kind. Um, the body that Christ had when he rose from the dead was different in one sense than the body he had before his crucifixion. It's a glorified body, a body that would never die again, a body that is that is like the old body, it's still a physical body, but it's improved. It's the better model. And it is untainted by sin and the curse and death. And it's designed and meant to dwell in eternity forever. So Jesus' resurrection is the first of this kind of resurrection. So he's the first fruits, and there are more to come. Our resurrections one day will be like Christ's in that sense. Our bodies will be glorified. 
It will be improved. It will be a different kind of body that will never die again. That's the nature of Christ's resurrection. Uh, we also must, must say that the nature of his resurrection is literal and physical. So Christ's resurrection was not just a hallucination that his loved ones had. They wanted to see him so badly that they talked themselves into believing it. No. Um, they weren't just seeing a ghost. They weren't seeing a, a spiritual representation of Jesus. No, they were actually seeing him with his physical body. Yes, it's a glorified body, a new and improved body, but it's his body, the same one that died. In fact, it bore the scars of his crucifixion to show that he was the same one. It's the same body. And definitely we should say that the resurrection is not a metaphor. Um, it was heartbreaking to me years ago. I've shared this story with some of you. Uh, to listen to a sermon in our community from another church on Easter where the pastor said that the resurrection of Christ did not literally take place. This is a, a mythological, metaphorical story that's meant to inspire us that we can overcome any obstacles. And my jaw hung open because I thought, wow, first of all, that's denying what Scripture says and it's ignoring how the New Testament speaks of the resurrection, but it's also the anti-gospel. The message of the resurrection is that we can't defeat death, but Jesus can, and he did. And so our hope, our victory is found in trusting him, being united with him through faith. And the message that this man was preaching was to trust in yourself, that it's up to you to overcome your obstacles. And this story is supposed to somehow inspire that. And friends, that's false teaching. It's heresy to deny the resurrection of Christ, and it completely guts the gospel of its power. So we must say that the resurrection is literal and physical. It wasn't a vision or a ghost or a metaphor. It really happened. And we see the physical nature of the resurrection even in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 9 says that they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. You can't take hold of the feet of a vision or a ghost or a metaphor. Luke tells us in Luke 24, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And the reason Jesus did that in part, was to prove to them that they weren't just seeing things. He was real and in the flesh. So that's the nature of the resurrection. But here's an important question to ask. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Who is the agent of the resurrection? Is it God, the Father, or is it Jesus, God, the Son? We talk about the radical unity within the Trinity. There's one God, but we know there's a distinction between the persons of the Godhead. So how does Scripture speak of the resurrection? Acts 2, verse 24, says God raised him, speaking of Jesus, up. And to take you back to English, English class, God is the subject, raised is the verb, him would be the direct object. So the Son, him, is being acted upon by God, the Father. God is the subject of this active verb. He's doing the raising. So God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Romans 6 tells us, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In Romans 6 we find that Jesus is the subject of this passive verb, that it's happening to him. And it's the glory of the Father that raises him to life. Galatians 1 Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The Father raised Christ from the dead. But we can also find passages that speak of Jesus rising from the dead in and of his own power. 
In John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we, as we read further, we learn that Jesus wasn't just talking about the stones that were built there in Jerusalem. He was talking about his own body. And he says, I will raise it up. In John 10, 17, Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is Jesus speaking of his own authority to take up his own life after laying it down. In John eleven twenty five, one of these famous I am statements, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Hebrews seven sixteen says that Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. There's something in Jesus, this indestructible life that he possesses that is at work in the resurrection. So who is the agent of the resurrection? Well, biblically speaking, the Father and the Son both participate in this miracle of the resurrection. There are three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But remember, there is one God, and we affirm the distinctions because Scripture does, but we also need to recognize the radical unity of the Trinity. So we don't want to say the Father raised the Son and Jesus didn't have any part, but we also wouldn't want to say that Jesus rose from the dead and the Father was not involved. We see the Father and the Son participating in this divine miracle. So that's the agent of the resurrection. What's the impact of the resurrection? Well, four things very briefly we'll touch on. The impact of the resurrection is this. It is instrumental in our regeneration. 1 Peter 1 says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus, that same power, is the power that makes us alive when we repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is instrumental in our regeneration, us being made alive, lifted up from death to life. It's also instrumental in our sanctification and in our endurance. It's the power of the resurrection, Paul says in Philippians 3, that gives us victory over sin and fear and empowers us. Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know the power of the resurrection. He's not saying, I want to be saved. He's already saved. He's saying, I want to experience something of the resurrection power of Jesus as I lay aside sin and as I pursue Christ and grow and serve him. So it's instrumental in our sanctification and our endurance. The resurrection is also instrumental in our justification. Romans 4.25 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's also instrumental in our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this. Romans, 5, or Romans 6 verse 5 speaks of this, saying, If we've been united with him in a death like his, speaking of our union with Christ through faith, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As we rehearse so often, and especially at Easter, because Jesus lives, so will we. His resurrection is instrumental in our own. So that's the resurrection of Jesus. 
Following the resurrection, if we just look at the chronology of Jesus' life, we know that he ascended into heaven. He remained for 40 days after exiting the tomb, and he appeared to his disciples. We know that he encouraged them. He comforted them. Remember, Peter had denied him, and the rest had fled, so he's sort of gathering them back together and encouraging them, restoring them, really, and he's teaching them. But then eventually comes the time for him to leave, and we see this in Acts chapter 1. It says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven heaven. We see the same thing described more briefly in Luke chapter 24. Um, This is the ascension of Jesus, his return to glory. And this ascension is not just depicted in Acts, it was actually predicted by Jesus himself in John 14 too. Remember, he tells the disciples, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or if, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He says, I'm going. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He had told his disciples, there's going to come a point in time where I'm going. I'm going away. And there's reasons. In John 16, 5, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus had told his disciples this was going to happen. And then Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 describes it for us, that Jesus ascends back into heaven. And this aspect of the ascension, I think it's something of Jesus' life and ministry that we often overlook. We focus a lot on Christ's death and his resurrection, which we should. And we think a lot about Christ's birth before that. That's necessary. We think a lot about his return when he's going to come again. But what about the ascension? I think we often overlook that. For some people, the ascension might seem like, well, this is a simple transportation thing. I mean, he needs to get from point A to point B, right? And he was done with his time on earth, so it's time to go back to heaven. But there's several important factors we need to consider as we think about the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Christ is a fulfillment of the Father's plan and the Father's promise to exalt the Son. Jesus prayed this in John 17, 4. He says to his Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Remember, Jesus set aside that glory and humbled himself, Philippians 2 tells us, taking on human flesh and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He set aside his glory, and he's praying here that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had before the world existed. 1 Timothy 3.16 recites this creedal statement that the early church possessed, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The ascension is important because it's an important step, part of the process of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is step one of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's the Father saying, amen, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm pleased in you, and I accept your sacrifice. But the Father's not done exalting the Son by raising him from the dead. This ascension is part of that as Jesus returns to glory. And I think there's something new that's happening in the ascension. He's not just having restored to him the glory that he had before. That is definitely there, but there's also more. Because Jesus is not just returning to his former state. Remember, he is now both God and man. Before the incarnation, he was fully God, but he did not possess a human nature. In the ascension, it is the incarnate Christ who is fully God and fully man, this hypostatic union that we talked about a few weeks ago. That's who Jesus is as he's ascending into heaven. And there is a greater glory in that Jesus is being exalted as not only the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. Think about it this way. Jesus was never before worshipped by the angels as the Lamb before he came to earth. But after the ascension, he is. Revelation 5.12 tells us about this worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The ascension of Jesus Christ is an important step in his exaltation. Him receiving the glory that he is due, not just because of who he always has been since eternity past, but also the glory that is due his name because of what he did in his work on earth. This ascension is also an important step that leads to Christ's session. Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into glory, and then he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2.8 alluded to this earlier. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, the ascension is not just Jesus riding off into the sunset. The ascension is Jesus stepping back into heaven to take his rightful place on the throne, to receive the promised exaltation that is due to the Messiah. And this greater glory that Jesus is receiving and this enthronement in heaven as the risen Son of God, this was the ultimate reason for what Jesus did on this earth. Yes, Jesus died and rose again because he loves us and he desired to save us. That is true. But even underneath that was Christ's greater aim to magnify his glory. This is what Jesus had his eyes fixed on as he went to the cross. Hebrews 12 tells us this, that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we ask the question, what is the joy that was set before him? Is it the joy of having us as part of his family? Yes. Is it the joy of triumphing over Satan and ruining his plans and leading a host of captives free out of this kingdom of darkness? Yes. But I think ultimately this joy that he had his eyes fixed on was what we see right here at the end of this verse, that he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is glory. That is exaltation. Being seated on the throne has great significance. Just a couple observations on what it means that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is his session, that he's sort of set up shop there and has taken his place. Being seated on the throne is the fulfillment of promise. It's the highest honor that can be bestowed. And this was promised, Isaiah, or Psalm 110, verse 1. David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a promise, and it's a promise of bestowing great honor and place upon the Son. So it's a fulfillment of promise that gives high honor. But also being seated on the throne signifies the completion of his redemptive work. Hebrews 1.3 says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus taking his seat says something. It says something. On the cross, Jesus had said, it is finished. It's finished. His atoning work was done. It was paid in full. The resurrection and the ascension is the Father saying, yes and amen. It is indeed finished. And then Jesus taking his seat on the throne declares with authority that it is indeed done once and for all. There is no more atonement needed. Jesus did everything he came to do. He did it perfectly. He did it powerfully. And it cannot be improved upon. It need not be improved upon. Jesus sat down and said, I came and I saw and I conquered. I did exactly what I came to do. It's done. I think there's an echo here in Christ taking his seat on the throne. Really an echo of God's resting on the seventh day. That God does all this work throughout six days of creation. And then what does he do? He sits back and he rests. Not because he's tired, but because he's done. And he says, it's very good. And I think as Jesus sits on the throne, he can look at his redeeming work and say, I'm done, and I can rest, and it is very, very good. So Christ's session, him being seated on the throne, signals the completion of his redemptive work. And then third, being seated on the throne signifies his great power and authority over all. 1 Peter 3, verse 22 says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is on the throne. Nobody else is. That says something of his power and his authority. Ephesians 1.20 says that God has worked this, this amazing work that God has done in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Christ's session, him being seated on the throne, is the fulfillment of promise, a great honor. It signals the completion of his work, and it also signifies his power and his authority over all. So resurrection, followed by ascension, and then his session, his enthronement on high. 
But taking his place at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow retired. Okay, he is done with his redemptive work. Yes, he doesn't need to die or suffer or atone for sin anymore. That's done. But that doesn't mean Jesus is on the throne sitting on his hands with his feet up on a stool, not doing anything anymore. There is an ongoing aspect to his ministry that he continues to perform. Jesus now, this is part of his session, part of what he's doing now, ministers as our high priest. And as our high priest, he gives us access to God. There's too many verses in Hebrews to reference, but if you, as you read the book of Hebrews, you see this time and time again that Jesus is the great high priest, an eternal high priest, one who, according to chapter 4, verse 14, has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This passing through is significant um, because in the Old Testament, the high priest would pass through the curtain. He would go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was. And there, he had access to God's presence in a unique way to represent the people and perform his ministry on their behalf. Jesus does that for us. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There's this temple language again. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus goes in. He opens the curtain and he's a forerunner. He holds the door for us and and invites us to come in, to enter into the presence of God because Jesus has atoned for our sin. He has done this. And, And the author of Hebrews says, this is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Not just that Jesus died for us, he did, but that that death and that resurrection has significance now. That the living Christ has entered into the inner sanctuary of God's heavenly temple. And he says to his children, come in, come in. So Jesus now ministers as our high priest. As our high priest, he represents us. Hebrews 9.24 says that he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. This is amazing to me to think about. Jesus didn't just do something for me 2,000 years ago. He's doing something for me right now. He stands there in the presence of God on my behalf. As our high priest, he is our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So again, Christ's resurrection means he has an ongoing ministry. His ascension into heaven sets up this ongoing ministry. Him taking his place at the right hand of the Father positions him to have this ongoing ministry where he serves as our high priest. As our high priest, he advocates for us. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Romans eight thirty four. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is praying for us today, right now. Hebrews 7.24 says he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This prayer for us is important. It's important because we're weak. I'm weak. Because we sin. Because we grow discouraged. Christ prays for us. 
One of the reasons why our salvation is secure, one of the reasons Jesus can say, no one will take them out of my hand, is because he knows he's going to pray for us and the Father will answer those prayers. We know from Revelation 12, 10, it's not just that we're weak and we're sinful. It's not even just that our own consciences condemn us. But Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Christ advocates for us. He prays for us and pleads our case on the basis of his finished work on the cross. And this is important. I want to reemphasize something that, that I, I believe Carrie pointed out last, last time. That Jesus is not pleading our case to the Father because the Father is angry. Because the Father is skeptical and he says, why should I love this person? Jesus pleads our case because Satan is accusing. The Father does not accuse us. The Father is not condemning us. That's what Satan is doing. And the Father, because he loved us, sent his Son to redeem us. And now the Son says, these charges cannot stick. I've already paid that debt. Jesus is our priest who advocates for us. And again, this is an amazing thing. And I want you to consider it this morning, that Jesus did not just die for you. He lives for you today. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, he is pleading your cause. He is praying for you. He is your advocate with the Father. One of my favorite songs we sing here is, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And I won't read you all the lyrics because it's a good one and you probably know it. But it's good that we sing that, that we remember that. That's an encouraging thing when we're weak, when we're discouraged, when we fail, is to know that Christ not only died for us, but he prays for us. He advocates for us. He represents us now, today, to the Father. This is Christ's priestly ministry. And of course, there is more still that Jesus will do. And I will give you warning, we're not going to go very deeply into this today because we're going to give a whole section of this class to the return of Christ. But I will briefly touch on this. So today, yes, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. But the psalmist said, quoting these words, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There is more still to come. And while Christ does reign, in a sense, today from the throne, he is exalted far above every name, all rule, every authority. He possesses that as his right. But he is not at this moment fully exercising that in the sense that he's still letting people run around and be rebels today. In his patience, in his mercy, there's still time for sinners to repent and believe. But someday that patience will come to an end, and the appointed time will come and Christ will return. And he will do several things when he does. He will return to gather his elect. He's, going, he's coming for his people. He's coming back for us to take us to be where he is. He's going to return to judge mankind. 2 Timothy 4.1 says that he is the one who will judge the living and the dead. He's coming back to judge. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this, putting everything under his feet and then handing this whole kingdom over to his father. Jesus reigns today, but he has not fully established and enforced that reign. But that will happen when he returns. And then we know finally Jesus will return to make all things new. Revelation 21.5 says, The one who sits on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. This, these are the things that will happen when Christ 
return. So there's this future aspect to his work. He's going to come back to gather his saints and take us home. He'll establish his kingdom in power. He will judge his enemies, and then he'll hand the whole thing over to his father. And he's coming back in the fullness of his glory. It will be different than the first time Jesus came. The first time he came, it was a a silent night, a holy night. It was quiet. A few shepherds came. They had a big announcement, but nobody else really heard much. Jesus came in humility, in weakness, as a baby. But he will come back in power. With the sound of a loud trumpet, in the fullness of his glory, and it says, every eye will see him. So when we think about Jesus, when we understand Jesus, let's just sort of review this whole section. We need to understand Jesus in his eternality as the pre-existent second person of the Godhead. Jesus is God. We need to understand his work on earth as he takes on flesh and becomes a man. And he functions as our representative, as our savior, as our substitute. But we also need to consider Christ's ongoing ministry. What Jesus is doing today as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we need to remember his future work. That Jesus isn't done. He's not retired. He's coming back. He has unfinished business. And he's going to bring to completion the perfect plan of God from eternity past. Resulting in the ingathering of his elect, the judgment of his enemies, the establishment of his kingdom, and all things being made new. This is what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. So as we study Christology, we need to look at these things and understand them. And as, even as I prayed this morning, again, our hope is to, to show you these truths and to equip you because we want you to be able to read the Bible and understand biblical doctrine. This isn't just for the experts. This is for every Christian. Paul said he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He was hungry to know more. He was hungry to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory. He was hungry because he knew that in knowing Christ more in this experiential way, that that would have a transformative impact on his own heart. That that would fill him and empower him and encourage him to be who God was calling him to be. And friends, it's the same for us. We want to know Christ. So that's more than knowing about him, but it's not less. It's not less. So we want to present these truths to you, to encourage you. Maybe you're discouraged today. I hope that you will contemplate not only on Christ's death for you and his resurrection, but contemplate his ongoing ministry. It's encouraging to me because I don't feel very good at praying. I'm not very faithful at praying. But Jesus is really good at praying. (laughs) And he's very faithful. He's like the ultimate prayer warrior who intercedes for us. And that is just so comforting. So encouraging. Um, So I hope you've been encouraged by that. Uh, I hope that you will consider today Christ's ongoing ministry, what he's doing right now on your behalf. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, we give you the glory and the honor and the reverence that you deserve today. And we wish we could offer more. We wish we could worship you more fully, more perfectly. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wisdom and glory, honor, power, might, blessing. Jesus, we are thankful that you're not still in the tomb. We're thankful that you're also not even here walking around on earth today. We're thankful that you ascended to the throne room of heaven so that you could take your seat there and serve as our great high priest. We thank you for praying for us pleading our case, defending us against Satan's accusations. 
And Lord Jesus, we anticipate with great eagerness your return. We anticipate that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. We're thankful that the Father has exalted you highly. And we desire to add our voices today to the songs of the angels who sing your praise and your glory. Lord, help us to see you rightly and to love you as we ought. Amen.